Hello, we are the Two Tall Jews, and we are ready to go. We are back with episode three, season three, featuring the learned and the insightful Alexander Zapruder is on today's episode. More about her very soon. Before we get to her, we wanted to quickly speak about the situation in Israel that's been happening for almost two months now. I think 19 people have been killed since uh, mid-March in various different terror attacks, shootings, stabbings, axe hackings, as was the last one in the in the city of Elad. Three fathers were killed at the end of Yom Ha'atzmaut celebration. 16 uh, children were left fatherless. And it's heartbreaking. And, and every single time, you just the only thought you have in your mind is the Hebrew words ad matai, which literally means until when. We also say that when we're talking about Mashiach, until when are we going to be in this exile? Until when do we have to keep suffering? Even you know when we feel like we're home and feel like we're safe. And that's the craziest part is because the day-to-day life continues here because people need to live and people need to make money and people need to go to work, Palestinians included. But at the same time, we're still not desensitized like being in Israel right now. You're still not desensitized. You really feel it. You, you feel like an uptick in security when these things happen. The security establishment is constantly stopping things and we don't hear about them always. And the other thing is some people will still say like, for example, uh, I have some French friends that have moved to Israel and they say like, I'd rather still be in Israel than in France with everything that's happening. So it gives you perspective and it makes you grateful and we hope for the best. And unfortunately we expect the worst. We pray for you know the memories of all the people that have been stolen from us in the last two months. We just honored Yom Ha'atzma'ut and Yom Ha'atzikaron the day before, uh, which honors the memory of all the soldiers and terror and the victims of terror attacks. So it's a real thing here. It's the reality that could happen every day. But like I said, life goes on and, you know, we have to have, we have to keep our heads up. It's sad, but like we said, like life goes on and we know that their souls, their souls are in a different place now, closer to God. And there's people saying cottage for them. And soon uh, with coming of Mashiach, we'll all be together again. And I don't know if you wanted to add anything. Well, I had a question. The attacks that took place on Yom Ha'atzmaut, that's, there's a historical pattern to events happening on days of importance in Israel, correct? Yes and no. I think that in terms of a historical pattern, they have chosen holidays to attack. There's a couple of famous massacres, particularly one that comes to mind is the Netanya Pesach bombing in the Seder, which there were a lot of Holocaust survivors in. Um, They were killed immediately. The time of year that is common for attacks, unfortunately, is during their holy month of Ramadan, which just ended. In that sense, that's a recurring thing that we've seen in the past. And seemingly, from our perspective, it seems like they do it then because they know Israel will respond. And when Israel does respond, the narrative is perfect of Israel's anti-Muslim and look at them attacking us on our holy days when it's really just responding to attacks and setting up defensive measures to attacks. If any of our listeners have a problem with our take on that, uh, then you're brand new and you just you just started listening. <laughs> but we don't make apologies for Palestinian terrorists on this show. As bad as we know some of them have it in this land, there's no excuse for terrorism. So does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. And we will know no more pain. So we got to stay vigilant. We got to increase our Torah learning. We got to increase our connection to God. And we got to do more acts of good, as the Rebbe would say. And that is how we defeat this and also increase security and be more vigilant and take care of the criminals amongst us. Um, all right, looking ahead to this week, 
a little bit more of a positive shift here ish on our on this dangerous history page Isaac, give him the um preview we have world-renowned Yiddishist uh, and Holocaust scholar, noted linguist David Katz. His birthday is tomorrow. Future guest on the show. Future guest on the show. Look out for his episode in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. We have, on the 12th, we have Adolf Eichmann was captured in Argentina by Mossad agents. It's an incredible story. So yeah, he was, of course, brought to Israel and remains the only criminal that Israel has executed. So that's a wild story, which bring justice to history and the victims impacted by it. On the 14th, 3,600 Jews were arrested in Paris. Look out for that on the page, whether it be in post or story form. And that's just a few tidbits of yeah. uh, some of the stuff that will be thrown at you. Um, Another one is uh, Yaakov Agam, a yeah. famous Israeli artist who you can find if you go to the Tel Aviv Museum of Modern Art. There's a permanent display of one of his pieces which is really really cool because every angle that you see it from it looks different anybody who's you know who knows about artists specifically israeli artists knows the name yaakov agam he's one of the most famous so that's coming out this week as well if you're listening to this after the fact you can always go to our page on this dangerous history or, or on twitter daily jewish and check out these posts if you don't have social media you can go on jewishoriginal.com and very soon as we mentioned previously in the last episode, we will have an amazing resource that we're building with the World Jewish Congress, where we will upload all of this content in a more user-friendly format. And let's briefly do a pre-intro to Alexander Zapruder, because we already have an intro in the, in the episode, but you know, you have a personal relationship with Ms. Yeah, so I'll give the cliff notes on that mention a couple things that we touch on in the episode that our viewers can look forward to and talk about an upcoming event she's keynoting this coming week. So Alexander Zapruder, if the last name rings any bells, her grandfather, Abraham Zapruder, was the man that shot what became known as the Zapruder film, which is the physical evidence we have of the Kennedy assassination over 60 years ago. Um, She's a Holocaust scholar, get to that in a moment, but she wrote this book about living with the family name, part history, part memoir. So we talked about that a little bit. And the personal connection is my dad, Art Simon, also on the podcast, almost two years ago, actually, he wrote his dissertation on the Kennedy assassination through art and film. And he connected with Zapruder, or Zapruder connected with him when she was writing this book a couple of years ago. And I had the privilege of bringing Zapruder to UMass to speak for Yom HaShoah five years ago. So Alexander Zapruder, her resume speaks for herself, degrees from Smith and Harvard. She's a founding staff member of the Holocaust Memorial Museum. And she specializes or has specialized in children's diaries written sort of before the Holocaust. Uh, she's the author of Salvage Pages, won the National Jewish Book Award. And so we talk about that. We talk about the state of the museum. And we also talk about the state of anti-Semitism. We dive into a really interesting discussion of why anti-Semitism is perceived the way it is, why it's not viewed the same way racism and other forms of prejudice are. And it's a great conversation. She's a great person and we're happy to call her a friend. And on Tuesday, May 10th at 5 p.m., she is participating in a virtual event with the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust, located in New York's Battery Park, for the 22nd annual Fania Gottsfeld Heller Conference for Educators. 
He's going to be introducing Dispatches from Quarantine, Young People on COVID-19, a project to capture the real-time accounts of young people's experiences of the pandemic in writing, art, photography, and music. This is an outgrowth of her work with Young Writers Holocaust Diaries, previously mentioned. It'll run for about an hour and a half online. Tuesday, May 10th, we'll drop a link where you can find it, and you definitely want to check that out. And if you're listening to this after the fact of her event, you can check you her can out. You can catch it on the website. On the museum's website, not our website. Um, <laughs> on the, which museum is it again? The Museum of Jewish Heritage. Museum of Jewish Heritage. You can find it on the website. And you can also find her on Twitter. You can engage with her. A Zapruder. A-Z-A-P-R-U-D-E-R. A Zapruder is her Twitter handle. You can follow. You can message her. Let her know how much you enjoyed the episode. With that, we hope you enjoy the show. And we'll speak to you next time. You get it. <laughs> when many of us hear Israel, we instinctively flinch. In conservative and liberal circles alike, suddenly it's political. It's a screaming match. Everyone throws around loaded terms like apartheid, occupation, terrorism. So either we have these massive fights or we shut down and avoid the conversations entirely. But what if there were a better way where you could think and discuss Israel respectfully and with depth and nuance. In Unpacking Israeli History, Dr. Noam Weissman, history buff and passionate storyteller, is diving into that complication. You can go back and binge all of the first two seasons and great news, season three just started. So join Noam as he explores stories like the deadly Mossad operations, the Jew who colluded with the Nazis, and a bloody massacre in Hebron 20 years before the founding of Israel. In each episode, Noam takes you into the guts of the story, what happened, why it happened, why it matters, and how each of these stories is still impacting the news today. And next time someone brings up Israel, maybe you won't duck and cover as arguments start flying around you. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. Fun fact, Noam was also our first guest ever on the show. So when you listen to the show, Make sure you let them know how much you love our show as well and that we sent you there. And with that, enjoy the episode. The thing that shifted for me the most in doing Salvage Pages, it wasn't so much that I learned something about the Holocaust that I couldn't have learned somewhere else. It's that I learned something about young people that I couldn't have learned somewhere else, that they had the capacity to witness and describe, observe, reflect on their lives and that they left records that meaningfully change and shape how we understand this historical past. Before we discuss Holocaust Diaries and the Kennedy assassination, we want to learn a little bit more about your background and how did you find your field? I went to Smith College for undergrad and then I went home to Washington, D.C., which is where I'm from, and I got my first job at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, which was still being built at that time. And then I went up to Harvard and got my master's degree in education in the mid 90s and then returned back to Washington. So, I mean, finding my field is sort of an interesting question. I think in some ways I'm sort of still finding my field because I am interested in a lot of different things. And what I've finally learned is that really I'm interested in storytelling. And so in my life, that storytelling has taken a lot of different forms. Of course, a lot of it has been in writing, but it's also been in exhibitions, both online and actual literal exhibitions in physical spaces, film making, 
and all different kinds of forms of sort of looking at the historical past and reinterpreting it for contemporary audiences. So my field is sort of whatever I'm interested in at a given moment, although Holocaust is definitely the big framework, I would say. Is there anything along these lines that you're working on right now that you can share? I'm working on so many things right now that it is absolutely bonkers. So I am at the moment curating an online exhibition about a Vilna ghetto diarist, a young diarist from Vilna ghetto who is a particular favorite of mine in connection with the YIVO Institute for Jewish Research. I'm ghostwriting a memoir about a German Jewish family who fled from the Nazis and settled in America. And I'm working part-time for the Defiant Requiem Foundation as their education director, which is an organization that tells the story of cultural resistance in Terezin. But I also have a number of other projects, which I can tell you more about in more depth. One of them is Dispatches from Quarantine, which is a contemporary youth writing project. And I have several books that I'm beginning to noodle over, think about doing in the next couple of years. So there's always a lot. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I lose track. I probably forgot Mm -hmm. something, but anyway. Amazing. So this next question is sort of three parts. So in the 2015 article that you penned for LitHub, you described your journey in the field and wrote that the seven or eight diaries that you came across while working on the project, Daniel's story, happened to you. Mm. So what specifically happened? So what happened was that I was working as a researcher for the Holocaust Museum. It was early in my tenure there. And I was asked to have a look at diaries that had been kept by teenagers during the Holocaust. And this was in the service of being on the curatorial team and helping to write the exhibition script, which was going to be written in the form of a diary. And so we wanted to read real diaries that had been kept by teenagers. And so I went back and reread the diary of Anne Frank. And then I went to the museum's library and got this handful of diaries that had been published. And what I mean when I say they happened to me is that I had this enormously visceral experience when reading these diaries. It was like being catapulted into the past. There was something so raw and so authentic and so immediate about the material that it sort of collapsed the time. Like I felt like I sort of forgot where I was and I was in these places with these writers, viewing their experiences from their perspective or through their eyes. And that was extremely powerful. I don't think I had ever had that kind of experience before, although I loved history. I had always looked at history from the point of view of the present, looking back. But there was something about the nature of a diary and the way that diaries are written in real time. Sounds like a cliche, but really brought the history alive. That was what it felt like. And so I think it was that experience that was so powerful. It was more that that experience was powerful at the time than the content itself. And this feeling that here were these amazing writers, these young people who had engaged in this laborious act of documenting their days. And there was so much insight and so much power and poignancy in the material. All of these books were out of print and inaccessible. And so that felt like it demanded a a response or an action. That was not something that I felt that I could leave alone. Just one question, um, because we mentioned Daniel's story, in case somebody doesn't know about the exhibit, it's still in the Holocaust Museum? It is. So Daniel's story is the museum's exhibition for young visitors, ages 8 to 12. And it opened in 1993 when the museum opened to the public and is still there. There was also a traveling version that I came back to the museum to work on, a version that traveled to a number of places but is not in circulation any longer. But that exhibition is still at the museum, yes. Mm -hmm. 
And do you think that the attention that the diary of Anne Frank has received over the years has contributed to the suppression, in a way, of these other stories? So I wouldn't use the word suppression, but I would say that it, for a long time, eclipsed other diaries. It was sort of a de facto situation. You know, Anne Frank's diary and many other people have written about this besides myself, but Anne Frank's diary came into the American landscape at a time when it was sort of the perfect fit. It was published in America in 1952. And there was something about Anne Frank herself. She was very recognizable. She sort of almost sounded like a regular teenage girl. She almost sounded like she could have been American. She wasn't too Jewish in quotes. She was very relatable. And so her diary became the avenue through which people could, for the first time, confront the Holocaust, but not confront it too much because her story takes place very far away from the East. You know, she's in hiding with her family. There's a lot of fear outside the diary, but it's not like ghetto diaries with day-to-day starvation and witnessing death and deportations. And so I think her diary fit very well in sort of an American culture. And then it just stayed there. It worked so well and it sort of suited American culture so perfectly that it just became the sort of way that people encountered this history. And I don't think that people felt necessarily that there was a need for kind of a second young writer. You know, she became symbolic of all of the young writers and that in and of itself kind of eclipsed other writers who had written and wrote very different kinds of diaries. Mm, absolutely. We're sitting with Alexander Zapruder, historian, writer, author of the book Salvaged Pages and 26 Seconds, which you can find on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy your books. This is a question that we've asked a couple of different educators and scholars, and it's obviously very relevant, and especially with the conversation of Anne Frank. It seems like anytime there is something negative, something traumatic, something tragic, people automatically compare to the Holocaust or... Mm-hmm or they compare it to Anne Frank's story or something of the sort. We're seeing it with the COVID vaccines. We're seeing it with lockdowns, incomparable moments. You can't even call this tragedy. So what role should the Holocaust actually play in terms of remembering it in that sense to emphasize the tragedy, but also understanding like where that line is drawn? And then if that line is crossed, how do we then better communicate to people who are well-intentioned, perhaps, that they should pull it back, understand... Mm-hmm. the dangers of making such comparisons. Mm-hmm. I mean, your question really goes to the heart of, I think, a much bigger, broader set of problems in our society, which stem from a lack of education in general. So a sort of inability to honor the historical specificity of a given moment, to understand the terms of those moments and to sort of cherry pick details or facts and to apply them to completely non-analogous situations. This is what we've seen with the mask mandate and the vaccines. I mean, it's so ironic, you know, that something that is meant to preserve life should be twisted into an attempt to prevent life. And I think the Holocaust is in many ways in the public imagination, like the worst example of a certain category of thing, just like Hitler is the worst example of a certain category of dictator. And so there's a tendency to reach for that in a hyperbolic kind of way, like, oh, my rights are being infringed. Therefore, this is exactly like Jews in the Holocaust, which of course is just patently absurd. 
I mean, look, in the best of cases, it's well-meaning people. But unfortunately, I think a lot of the time it is not well-meaning people. I think it is people who are deliberately and even in some cases knowingly falsely making those connections because it scores political points, because it gets people riled up, because it gets you on the front page of the newspaper or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our problems are way bigger than how the Holocaust is represented. It goes right to the heart of of a lack of media literacy and people's inability to kind of understand the historical past and also the role that conspiracy thinking and certain kinds of agenda-driven narratives are tossed around. So I think it's a bigger problem. But I think for those of us who teach this history, all you can do is do the same thing that you do when people are not behaving this way, which is teach the history as authentically as you can, resist the temptation to get into arguments about making comparisons that are not comparable and kind of stand your ground. I don't know what else there is to do. It's infuriating and daunting. It's almost like that's a political conversation that's happening. Mm -hmm. And I am interested in history. So I sort of feel like we're talking at cross purposes and what can I do? There's not too much I can do about that, if that makes sense. Yeah, we had on a professor. He lives in Hong Kong. He's from Scotland. His name is Ben Freeman. And he had a really good point that for a very long time, we taught the Holocaust in place of teaching about anti-Semitism. So Mm. we thought that by teaching about the Holocaust, people would understand what is anti-Semitism, what is Jewish hatred. And we sort of missed the point in that the Holocaust obviously is just one example. It's the worst example of Jewish hatred, but it was a culmination of hundreds of years of dehumanization. And so people don't understand, people see the Holocaust not in the context of hundreds of years of European anti-Semitism or world indifference. That sounds right to me. And the other thing is that I think the Holocaust has become a stand-in for a lot of things. There is a way in which there's an implied moral education in studying the Holocaust that I'm not sure always works. I think, again, you know, the Holocaust is a historical period with certain characteristics and there's an enormous amount to learn from it. But the idea that just merely by learning about the Holocaust, you're going to somehow like create more morally aware beings, I think is a faulty premise. And I think that the history of Holocaust pedagogy has been framed by that. And that has been something that I think I've seen teachers really wrestle with. What is the point of teaching this history? Do we know that teaching this history makes better people? Is that what this history should be for? Or is there something else that needs to happen in order to accomplish that goal? And I certainly don't have the answers to those questions, but those are questions that I think are worth asking. So that's a really good segue to what do you make of Holocaust education in the United States as it sort of currently stands? Before college, so the middle school and I guess mainly high school level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, improve it? It's interesting because my world because of salvaged pages and because of the life that this book has had, I am surrounded by hundreds of amazing Holocaust educators who are doing incredible things with students in this field. I was about to say, like, I think Holocaust education is pretty good in this country. But I think what I mean is I know a lot of great educators who are doing great work. That's not the majority That's not what's happening all over the United States of America. In that sense, and I'm so deeply immersed with organizations and individuals who are engaged in best practices around Holocaust education and who are really having the hard conversations that I feel like from my vantage point, as I said, things are kind of optimistic. Let me put it this way. The distance that we've traveled in the last 20 years since Salvaged Pages came out 
is enormous. It used to be when I first started teaching salvaged pages, you know, teachers were doing reenactments all over the place. There was kind of a, a very um, common sort of sentimental romanticizing kind of framework for talking about the Holocaust back in the seventies, when I was studying the Holocaust, I always say that Holocaust education was inflicted on kids in the seventies. Like it was almost punitive. It was like the point was to scare the crap out of people. So if you look at it from that vantage point, I think we have come a huge distance and there are amazing organizations like the Holocaust Museum, like Echoes and Reflections, like Facing History and Ourselves and others who are really leading the way in this. That said, it's a big country. And I know from Holocaust educators around the country that there are a lot of places where there's an enormous amount of pushback in Holocaust education, where Holocaust education is not happening in the classroom. So we have a long way to go. Do you worry about subsequent generations not being taught about the Holocaust as the last generation of survivors dies off? I don't worry about that. I mean, I worry about a lot of things, <laughs> but, but I don't worry that the Holocaust is not going to be taught. I worry a little bit about the relationship, I think, Mayor, as you pointed out, between the Holocaust and anti-Semitism. And I worry about the rise in anti-Semitism. I worry about the fact that anti-Semitism seems to be... Mainstream. Well, it's mainstream, but it's also... It's like anti-Semitism isn't viewed in the same way as other kinds of prejudicial behavior, racism or xenophobia or whatever. It's like there's something has happened, and I don't know exactly what it is, but I struggle with this a lot, that Jews and anti-Semitism is sort of seen as not a real problem. And Jews' concerns about anti-Semitism, I think, are not taken all that seriously. And so that is far more worrying to me than sort of the fate of Holocaust education. Right. Cause we worry about that too. You mentioned Facing History and Ourselves, and what was the other one? So or Facing History and Ourselves is a wonderful organization out of Boston. Mm -hmm. um, Echoes and Reflections is a curriculum mm -hmm. produced by the ADL. Um, the Anti-Defamation League, and of course, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. But there are also a lot right. of other great small organizations around the country that are doing this work. And they're amazing Holocaust centers. I mean, hundreds of them all right. over the country in little regions everywhere that are teaching teachers every single year, reaching out to school groups and kind of boots on the ground, for lack of a better way of saying it, when it comes to Holocaust education. So and a lot of those organizations are learning those best practices from these larger groups. And if, if you were to bring it down to like a more personal level, uh, what books would you recommend to read about the Holocaust, aside from the ones that everybody knows? Aside from Salvaged Pages, Young Writers' <laughs> Diaries of the Holocaust by Alexandra Zapruder. That would be a good one to start with. I mean, there's so many. I don't yeah. even know where to start. I'm very interested in anything about any diaries that were written by young people and by adults. So there's a diary called The Diary of David Sherakoviak that was written in large ghetto that's incredibly powerful. There's the amazing story, Who Will Write Our History by Sam Cassow. Yeah, yeah. Manuel Ringelblum. Yeah, and the Oinix Chavez, which is this huge archive from Warsaw Ghetto. There's also an incredible book called The Book Smugglers by David Fishman, which is all about smuggling materials out of the Vilna Ghetto and preserving them. So these are the kinds of things that I'm reading these days that I find very inspiring and, and very powerful. Before we move on, Isaac has a question about the Kennedy assassination. Yeah. Sure. I just thought of this question because we've asked it in different ways to other people. If you could have a, a Shabbat meal with three 
figures that unfortunately died in the Holocaust or soon after the Holocaust, who would they be? If you could have a, basically, if you could have a, a conversation with three figures. I think I would choose three of the diarists from Salvaged Pages. I think I would choose Yitzhak Rudyshevsky, who was 15 and who wrote in Vilna Ghetto. I would choose the anonymous boy who was a young man whose name is unknown, who wrote in Lodge Ghetto in 1944. And I would choose Elza Binder, who was a diarist who wrote in Stanislavov Ghetto. I would have dinner with the three of them. And I have a lot of questions that I would ask. So now to your last name in the Zapruder film. So you were born after the Kennedy assassination and therefore raised having a last name of heightened historical significance. What was that like? And did you always plan on writing about it? I definitely did not always plan on writing about it. In fact, I always planned on not writing about it. And I think my understanding of my last name changed over time. You know, at some point in my childhood, I must have been told about the Zapruder film. And I knew that, you know, I had a famous last name and that my grandfather had done this thing, but we were really not encouraged to talk about it or kind of call attention to it. That was like very much against the sort of prevailing culture in our family. And so I mostly did not pay very much attention to it until I was an adult And I was always a little surprised when people asked me about it or made comments. I think I didn't wear it. I didn't wear my last name sort of with a sense of its significance. And as a result of that, I would often meet people who would react to me in a way that was confusing to me because I wasn't sort of perceiving what they were perceiving. But that changed. So my father got very sick um, at age 65. I was in my early 30s. And it really was his illness and the awareness that he was dying that made me feel like I needed to think more about the film. And initially, my plan really wasn't initially to write about it so much as it was to try to just gather all the historical material that we had in the house and kind of around my aunt's house and just kind of like consolidate the information with the thought that this was sort of the responsible thing to do in light of my father's death. And then once I went down that road, it it became clear that a book was inevitable. So as part of a recurring conversation here on the Two Tall Few show, we want to talk about the word anti-Semitism. So from a historical perspective, anyone who's familiar with the word's origins is aware of its anti-Jewish intention. What are your thoughts or what's your opinion on shifting the word to describe Jewish hatred away from anti-Semitism to something less anti-Semitic, like Jew hatred, Judeophobia, or anti-Jewish racism? That sounds totally reasonable to me. That seems like a totally reasonable thing to do. In a lot of online discourse these days, like in, on like Instagram and Clubhouse and Twitter, mm-hmm. if you rightly call someone an anti-Semite, they say something anti-Semitic or they share something anti-Semitic and they come from an Arabic background, they'll oh. respond with, I can't be an anti-Semite because I'm a Semite. I see. Uh-huh. So um, that's why a lot of people are writing it as one word, S, you know, making an emphasis on that because... Anyways, Semite is a language group, not a people. Right. Um, (laughs) I mean, I think saying anti-Jewish is pretty clear. That is so interesting because when I think about it, the term anti-Semite is so historically powerful. I totally see what you're saying. And I think it is more precise to say it a different way. And yet 
there's something about leveling that word at somebody that seems like it sort of goes to the heart of what the behavior is. But I, I don't think that's necessarily a good reason to keep using it. I just think that now that I'm thinking about it, like, why does it feel so powerful to say that about somebody? You know, I mean, I just tweeted the other day, yesterday, that JD Vance is an anti-Semite. And, you know, it felt really satisfying to say it because his discourse, his rhetoric is anti-Semitic. But I could have just as well said anti-Jewish or Judeophobic, although that sounds a little, yeah, sounds a little thinky to me. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't quite have the, it doesn't communicate the hatred. I like saying Jew-hating bigot. <laughs> Jew-hating bigot is good. Yeah. All right. I'm convinced. Unfortunately, we need a term. We got a lot of people to call out, I'm afraid. So when we ask that question to other people, they're like, no, what's the point? It's already understood. There's no reason. We're just creating more issues. But I think if you just, over time, you just include different versions of it, like Jewish hatred or like what it was, Judenhaus. Like there's a reason why the anti-Semites decided that Judenhaus wasn't good because it was right to the point. It was too hateful of a word. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. All right. I love that. Final question. Oh, okay. So if you had a gigantic billboard, billions of people could see, what would it say and why? I would want to wordsmith this, but it would say what young people think and feel about their lives matters. For me, what is most important about salvaged pages and the work that I've done in the years since then is that it has given me an opportunity to focus on how important young people are and can be as historians of their lives. And although I care enormously about the Holocaust and Holocaust education, I care enormously about the rise in anti-Jewish rhetoric and what that means for all of us. I care a lot about many things that have to do with being Jewish and having this incredible, beautiful culture be seen and appreciated and understood. And I also care a lot that I think young people are marginalized in our society. I think that we have the tendency to think that young people need to wait to grow up before they have something that is worth being said. The thing that shifted for me the most in doing Salvage Pages, it wasn't so much that I learned something about the Holocaust that I couldn't have learned somewhere else. It's that I learned something about young people that I couldn't have learned somewhere else, that they had the capacity to witness and describe, observe, reflect on their lives, and that they left records that meaningfully change and shape how we understand this historical past. And that's why... First, it was salvaged pages. And then one of the big things that I did in 2019 was to curate an exhibition at Holocaust Museum Houston about young writers' diaries from other wars and genocides too. So it's Holocaust era, but also there's a Japanese-American internment, a young man writing in Japanese-American internment camp, non-Jewish victim of World War II. And then there's a young girl living through the war in Bosnia. There's another girl living through the war in Iraq and a boy living under ISIS. And then more recently during quarantine, you know, really reaching out to young people and trying to create a platform for young people to observe and describe and reflect on their lives um, during the pandemic. So for me, the question is broader than about the specific historical moment. It's about making sure that we honor and capture those perspectives and we 
we lean on them the way that we do on adults to understand their lives.